and in Christ, this is number four. And the sermon today is mostly about marriage. But if you're single or divorced, don't touch that dial. Don't leave us. Uh, it's really about relationships and some skills and tools that are needed to navigate and to manage those relationships, one of which happens to be marriage. We're focusing on marriage, but the skills are for everybody. So stay with me, please. And here's where we'll start. I'm going to start with what I guess is a truism, I guess. And that is to say men and women are different. Amen? You agree with that? Men and women are different. I don't just mean in the outward, noticeable, physical, but men and women are different. There's a range, there's a spectrum, there's variety in that difference. There are various views about just how different and in what ways we're different, but all agree that in some ways men and women differ. Scripture tells us that men and women differ and that God intended they differ, and as a result they have different roles, particularly in the home and in the church. Mostly the same roles, but some different roles. But in addition to scripture, biology, sociology, neurology, psychology, vast, vast literature all tell us that men and women differ and that they self-select different roles. I want to give you just three interesting examples from the sciences because they back up what we find in scripture, examples of how men and women differ and select different roles. The first example is from the official publication of the International Academy of Sex Research. It's a journal called Archives of Sexual Behavior. And the journal recently published a peer-reviewed meta-analysis. That means a study of a whole lot of other studies that are giving results on differences between boys and girls. And they did a meta study of preferences that boys and girls have for different kind of toys. Now the study is very interesting. Here's what they found out. In one part of the study, they single one on boys and girls 18 to 24 months of age and on the toys that they select. So the unique thing about, the interesting thing about them being 18 to 24 months is they don't yet know there's such a thing as gender. They don't know there are boys. They don't know there are girls. They don't know there's male. They don't know there's female. They don't know that this gender is supposed to behave that way and that gender is supposed to. All they know is there's, there's people and there's toys and I like toys and they, they self-select certain toys. Now, the interesting thing is even at that age, the boys, this is a tendency. We're talking about a standard deviation. There's a bell curve. There's people all over the bell curve. But the bulk of the boys, the big lump in the bell curve, the boys chose things that had wheels. And the girls chose things that were, this is the study's term, that were plush. And they said the statistics are large, significant, and reliable. But then they get into kids who are a little bit bigger, a little bit older, and they ask, are there any differences here in their choices of toys? Well, my, there, there are many charts in this study. I looked at them all, but this is the one that caught me the most. So here's a big smiley chart, like there's lines going up. Here's the tallest line on this side. Those are the toys boys most like and select. And here's a tall line on this side. Those are the toys girls most like and select. And then the smile comes down to the middle. Boys and girls alike are least interested in them. They're interested in them about the same amount. By the way, guess what's down there? There in the middle. Books and Play-Doh. Out of the things they were presented, it's books and Play-Doh. But guess what's up here for boys? Here's the thing boys really like, and it's a huge line. There's a great deviation in these. Boys, their first selection is vehicles. And their, section choice, their second choice is tools. Guess what girls select? You go over here and all the way up on this line, and the thing girls select is dolls. And the next thing over to it is kitchens for the dolls, dolls and kitchen tools. Boys and girls like tools, car tools, vehicle tools, kitchen tools. 
So they select very different things, but they're the same when it comes to books and Plato. Neither one of them are very interested compared to those two things. And again, the difference is statistically significant and reliable. So that's example one from the sciences, men and women differ. Here's example number two from the social sciences. It studies men and women and aggression. Do men and women differ in terms of aggression? So here's what they did. Here's what you can do. If we show you 100 people and you pick two at random, a man and a woman, and if you said, uh, I think the woman's more aggressive, you would be right 40% of the time. So that's not a huge deviation, but remember we're working with a, a, a bell curve and the differences always show up out here in the in the long tails. So when you go out on this end of the tail and get the most aggressive people, let's say we have a million people in the study and we pick the most aggressive 10 out of, or the most aggressive 100 for that matter, or probably the most aggressive 1,000 out of them, they're all out here on this end of this long tail and guess who they are? They're all guys and they're all in jail. Or they learned to channel it and they became Navy SEALs or something like, or MMA fighters or something, but they're all highly, highly aggressive. So the study indicated that, that, that men and women differ in aggression. Here's a third study that I'll mention to you. It's about the interests that men and women have and on which they differ. Now, in general, the studies tell us that men and women differ in this way. There are other ways, but women are more interested in people. And in particular, women notice faces. And young males don't. I should say young, young women and young males. Young males don't notice faces. Like they barely notice facial characteristics. But girls really do. So women in general are more interested in people. Men are more interested in things. They notice wheels. They notice things. This is seen later on in life in what happens to men and women in business. And we'll take just one area of business, the practice of law. In businesses where there's an opportunity to really go up big, to make whopping salaries, to go really, really high. Here's part of why they tell us there's a, an actual gender gap. The gender gap is not down here. The gender gap is up there. And it's because there are more men up there. Now, why? Those who are entering law schools and are entering to law, in, among those, women are overrepresented. There are more women going to law school than men. There are more women starting law careers than men. But when you get to the heights of law, those dizzying heights up there, women are really, really starkly underrepresented. Why is that? Well, you can come up with a theory and impose it on that. But here's what the data tells us. Here's what statistics tell us. Here's what sociologists and psychologists tell us. And they have discovered that here's what happens. In their early levels, women are overrepresented. And they went to Harvard just like the guy went to Harvard. And they landed the job in the great corporation just like the guy did. And they're aggressive just like he is, and they're, he is, and they're brilliant just like he is. And so they're going neck and neck, and they're both rising up, and they're headed for the top, and they're both working 80-hour weeks because you have to. And you're going to work 80-hour weeks for your life if you want to get to the top in those careers and stay at the very top. There are actually very few men who make it to the top, and there are fewer women who make it to the top. Now, what happens to the women? Why are they underrepresented at the top in the big law careers? It's because, the studies tell us, when they get to be about 30, they say, this isn't what I want. And there are two things they want. One is, most of them are married, but they say, I want a real relationship with that man. And working like this, I will never have a relationship with him. We barely see each other. And secondly, they say, I want some babies. 
and I want to be their mother, and I want to be there. And if I work 80 hours, I won't even know my babies, but I want to know them, and I want to raise them. And they bail on the career, and that, we are told, is why women are really underrepresented at the heights of all those careers where there's demands on your time. 80-hour weeks, it is your life, it will be your life. It's not some oppression. Maybe in some places it's some oppression. We're talking about a standard deviation bell curve here. But it's largely... Women opt out. Men and women choose differently. Men and women want different things. We see this with the sciences, and these back up what we see in the Word of God. Men and women are made different and are made for somewhat different roles, though mostly we're pretty much the same. Now, this is supposed to be about marriage. I told you the sermon was about marriage, and so far it's about studies outside of God's Word about males and females. Pastor Steve, would you bring us to marriage? Okay. I said all that to say this. We're coming to marriage now. And these differences, these gender differences, contribute to turbulence in marriage. Is there turbulence in marriage? You know, you're flying through turbulence, and the plane's going like this, and the wings are flopping. Yeah, marriages get like that sometimes, and they fly through turbulence. What creates the turbulence? Well, these gender differences contribute, but I chose that word carefully. They only contribute. They're probably not the biggest cause. The biggest cause of turbulence in marriage is just the fact that you have a sinner and another sinner living close together. Like if there were no gender differences except the obvious physical and you had a man and woman in the same house, sinner and sinner is enough to cause trouble. Amen? I mean, we could... We could Slightly twist. I don't mean to twist scripture. We could have fun with a verse. You want to be careful having fun with verses. But the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, we can say where one or two sinners are gathered together, where two sinners are gathered together, there's trouble. There's going to be some trouble. Second uh, Chronicles 6.36 says very starkly, there is no one who does not sin. So I'm looking at a single young lady. You know this. You're looking at guys and you'd like to find Mr. Right, right? Mr. Right. I just want to tell you, Mr. Right is a sinner and he's not completely right. You want to find Miss Right. She's a sinner and she's not going to be completely right. You're looking for that perfect. Well, there is no perfect. So you're going to look for a long, long time. Um, we're all fallen. So anybody you marry is fallen and there are going to be problems. There's going to be turbulence in that marriage. But now gender differences, men and women differ, contribute to the turbulence in that marriage. Peter seems to have had this in mind when he wrote 1 Peter 3, 7. Let's look at it. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. We'll come back to that word, understanding. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That's a leveling statement. So that your prayers may not be hindered. What does that mean? God doesn't want to listen to the prayers of a man who ain't treating his woman right. That's what that means. The heavens are as brass. Go make it right with that woman. Go start treating her right like you ought to be treating her. Then God will hear your prayers. Why isn't God answering my prayers? How are you treating your woman? But let's go back to the word understanding. We're talking about gender differences and how they contribute to turbulence in marriage. And Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Why do you need to be understanding? Because she's different. Because she's not like you. If it's another guy, I pretty well get that. You have a problem, go out in the backyard, punch each other. It's all going to be okay. It doesn't work that way with a girl. You have to dwell with her according to understanding. You're marrying someone who is not in every way like you. And guys, this understanding is, I want to say this, it is an uphill battle for at least the following two reasons. One, it's an uphill battle because she's not like you. 
She's wired differently. She's fueled chemicals, hormones. She's fueled differently than you are. You guys are different. You'll see things different. You'll desire different things. You'll long for different things. You'll be hurt by different things. You respond to hurts in different ways. It just works like that because of our wiring and our fuel. So you're supposed to live with her according to understanding, but she's different. She's got different wiring, different fuel, so it's hard to understand her. But here's a second reason why it's difficult to live with your wife in an understanding way. It's because you're a guy. And when it comes to social cognition, understanding other people, being able to read them, being able to feel them, being able to store things away and retrieve them again that help you in social relationships and and in social cognition, men are pretty much dolts. And there's ample literature on that. The studies are clear on that. The statistics are there. Guys are horrible at social cognition, and women are pretty keen at social cognition. They come by it naturally. We come by it, if we're lucky, by the time we're 66. It starts to dawn on you. So what this means is literally, factually, no exaggeration. Think of this. Before you were married, you knew almost nothing about femininity. Oh, you had a mother. She had femininity. It was, that's right at the edge of my peripheral vision. That's kind of what you saw of femininity. There's every now and then maybe, shh, you know, and she went by. She came back again. That, that's about all the exposure you had to femininity. You had a sister. Here was your exposure to femininity. She's out there in my peripheral vision, but every now and then it's like, and then back out again. That's how it was with my sister and me anyway. She could easily outword me because women can. And I could easily beat her up because guys can. And she'd outward me and I'd get angry and chase her and she'd run in the bathroom and slam the door and I'd bang on the door. That happened many times before mom and dad got home after, after their jobs. Men and women are, many women are, are, are different. And you're marrying femininity and you're supposed to dwell with her according to understand, but she's different. And you're not very good at figuring out different. It kind of goes like this. After your mother and your sister being out there for a while, and then what happens is you marry. And then femininity goes like that, right? And stays vibing right there all the time, very close. And after, we're still obtuse, guys. After about six months, you, you begin to blink and say, huh, there's something different there. You know, I, I don't know just what it is, but I'm realizing there's, there's something different. Guys, it behooves you to figure out that something different. The difference contribute to the turbulence. Here's, here's an example, by the way, of how some of this works out, living with your wife in an understanding way. This is one way that works in my marriage. Now, maybe this doesn't happen in your marriage, but it happens in, with Debbie and me. It took me the longest time to learn this because I'm a guy. We're social adults. But now I know. Now I know that whenever she says, and she regularly does, whenever she says something like, uh, could you fix that, please, when you get a chance? <laughs> the words when you get a chance do not mean when you get a chance. Like, I'm a guy. She says to me, when you get a chance, and I think, I don't want to fix that. January, next January, I'll get a chance. No, no, no. When she says, could you fix that when you get a chance? Guys, this is a test. <laughs> it is a measurement of your love. And I have learned, and you asked Debbie about this, with rare exceptions anymore, pretty much when she says to me, could you fix that? I immediately drop anything and everything I'm doing, and I go fix that for her because I know that's saying to her, I love you. 
That's her love language. It's one of them. She's got all of them. <laughs> all the five love languages. I have to do all five of those. It's a hard life. But anyway. Okay, so there are gender differences and they contribute to the difficulties and the turbulence. So what helps? What can masculinity married to femininity? We're both sinners, plus we're different genders. What can we do to make that work? Because we want to make it work to our good and to the glory of God. And the answer, fortunately, is really, really very, very extremely simple. In fact, I can express it to you in one word, and the rest of the sermon is all about this one word. You know what the word is? It's love. One of the most important things you ever do is dwell with your wife according to understanding. Love your wife, love your husband. And fortunately, it's that easy. It's about love. You don't need a PhD to love. You don't need to read psychological journals and figure out what the peer-reviewed studies say. You just love. The differences are navigated by love. I wrestled with that word navigated. I tried mitigated, negotiated, ameliorated, eliminated. No, definitely not eliminated. And uh, I just decided I would land on navigated. So the differences are navigated by love. But when we start there, let me say, let me define for you what we mean by love and what we don't want to mean by love. The world around us has a view of love that doesn't work. It's not the biblical view of love. It's very different from Don't believe it. Here's the world's view of love. Love, this is Hollywood love. Love is a feeling that you feel when you feel that you're going to get a feeling that you never felt before. That's love. It's, it's, and and we use this word and I use it. I'm not complaining about the word, but we say, well, I fell in love. Oh, really? It's like you were walking along one day and somebody left a manhole cover open and you weren't looking down and you suddenly just went, and now you're down in the manhole. Well, I just fell in the manhole. I just fell in love. And the problem with the view of love that says, well, it's just a feeling that you feel and you fall into it. It either happens or it doesn't. You're a victim or not. You have no part in it. There's no role you can play. It just, I just fell in love. The problem is then later on you can fall out of love and people do. And they say, well, uh, the guy comes to see the pastor. Well, my marriage isn't doing so good. And frankly, pastor, I just don't love her anymore. As if that's the last word. But it's not the last word. The, The next word is, well, you're going to have to learn. Because the Bible tells you to. That'll come later in the sermon. But the differences are navigated by love. Let's hear from the Bible on love. First, some general verses on love. They apply to marriage. And secondly, some specific verses on marriage and love. Here's some of the general ones. Matthew 22:39. Jesus simply says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You remember he was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? And he said, it's you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then he volunteered a second answer that hadn't been requested and said, and the second is like it, you shall love other people. You shall love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now, when you get married, she becomes your closest neighbor for life. So if there's anybody on the planet who ought to receive and feel and be blessed by your love, it's her. It's him. If you're single, it's the people in your life. If you're divorced, it's, it's the peop, other people remaining in your life. If anybody gets your love, it's your neighbor. And it's your closest neighbors, if anybody. And that's usually going to be family. And if you have a family where you love your neighbor as yourself, a husband and a wife both doing that, that's a good marriage. Sermon over. Let's go home. It's all we need. Here's a little more about that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, 
Let all that you do be done in love. And you apply that to your marriage. Everything I do relating to Debbie is supposed to be love, 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 love. Not the Hollywood love, but biblical love. Biblical love, which is a commitment, which is a determination, which is taking actions to show your love, and those actions are servant actions. They are giving actions. They are taking care of the other person actions. Let all that you be, do be done in that love. Or again, Romans 13, 8, Paul says, owe no one anything. So don't have any outstanding debts. If you borrowed for a car and you owe $6,000 on it, you're not outstanding for $6,000. You're outstanding for one month's payment. Make sure you make that month's payment and you're within that verse. But the verse is really saying, don't owe anybody anything except here's something you will always owe. Here's a debt you've never paid up. You can never say, that's enough love for today. I'm done loving. I'm going to be selfish. No, owe no one anything except to love each other. You always owe that. And if you owe it to anybody, you owe it to your wife. And if you owe it to anybody, you owe it to your husband. And you always owe that. What does that woman deserve? I owe her something. She deserves my love, my love, my love, my love, my love. For the one who loves, another has fulfilled the law. And if you have a man and a woman who both determine, I'm going to love a scriptural love. Not the kind you fall in and out of. Not the kind that's a feeling. I'm going to have a Christ-like love that is a purposeful, commitment, covenantal type love that commits to serve and to be there for. If you both commit to do that, that marriage is going to be pretty good. Let's look at some verses that specifically talk to husbands and wives and notice what they address. It's going to be love. First in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Paul says husbands, and now he's going to, this is the Bible's, New Testament's, and Bible's premier passage on husbands and wives. This is the biggest teaching section on husbands and wives in the Bible. What's the first and pretty much only thing Paul picks? Husbands love your wives. What kind of love? Not Hollywood love. Love as Christ Love the church, a commitment love, a covenantal love, a I will be there for you love, a we will make this work love, a we will figure this out and make it happen love. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and you are to love your wife. And that's the first and only command, pretty much, in this whole section. Love. Love that woman. It's going to be a good marriage. Love that man. It's going to be a good marriage. How about to wives? Titus chapter 2. This is cool. Titus chapter 2, the older women, let's get it up there, Titus 2, 3, and 4. There we are, thank you. The older women are to teach what is good. All right, that's going to be nice. So you, you older women, anybody want to self-identify as an older woman? You older women, you're to notice the younger women and say, well, I'm going to take her aside and teach her some things that are good. Honey, come over here with me. Let me teach you some things that are good. Well, what are the things that are good? Here's what he has in mind specifically. And so train the younger women to love their husbands. What's the most important thing you can commit to the younger women who are married? Honey, let me help you love that man. I've loved this one. Look at him. I've loved him 45 years. Now, if I can do that, you can do this. So let me train you how to love your husband. It's love. Love is the tool in your marriage toolbox. It is the tool to end all tools. It is the mother of all tools. By the way, speaking of guys and vehicles and guys and tools, um, 
I'm 66. It was only like in the past year that I finally bought a really nice craftsman, homeowner, weekend warrior type toolbox. I always had this little piece of junk toolbox that I got when we were first married. It was all rusty now and hard to get open and all. I had junk tools in there that people had given me here, and this one was broken, and they let me have it, and I put duct tape around it. And all that, those were my tools. I finally bought a nice craftsman toolbox. It's red. It's got these nice drawers. It's got the little drawers and then the big drawers. And I went and bought some nice shiny tools that match in sets. They make those. Nothing expensive, weekend warrior type stuff, but I got nice tools in there. Sometimes I just walk out, I'm in the garage, and I just slide the door open. (laughs) Look at those shiny tools in there. Close it again. I actually used some of them yesterday. I do use them a little bit. But I got a tool chest. And in the tool chest, there are tools for vehicles. Guys like tools and vehicles. What's in your marriage tool chest? Slide out any drawer, and guess what's in there? It's love. It's all love. And if you'll just love, if both of you will commit to love, it will be good. How can love help? How can it be such a powerful tool? How can it help two sinners of different genders to make something beautiful? Here's how. Try this on in your marriage, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. That sounds like a pretty good marriage. My husband is patient and kind. My wife is patient and kind. This bodes well. You guys are going to do pretty good. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. My husband's never rude to me. My wife is never rude. You guys are going to do pretty good. But here's the one I really like. Love does not insist on its own way. So when you said, I want that, and if I can't get that, I'm going to blow this whole thing up. That's not love. No, love doesn't insist on its own way. Love says, well, how can I serve you? What would would you like here? Very often it's going to lead to a discussion that leads to consensus. If you watch most marriages, that's really what's going to happen. Um, But I like that. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. How do you like that one? Is anybody here married to somebody irritable? Don't really do this, but right now just point behind them where they can't see it. Point. So I'll know who. Love's not irritable. A man just pointed to himself back there. Or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Ha ha. But rejoices with the truth. And it goes on. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endure. It bears and endures all things. I can't bear this man. I can't endure this man. Love can. So love is the tool in your marriage toolbox that makes all the difference. But what do you say to that guy who comes in and says, yeah, but I just, I don't love her anymore. I fell in and I fell back out. I felt the feeling and I no longer feel the feeling. So, so there's that. Well, here's what you say to that person, and maybe some of you are that person. Here's the next point. We'll put it up. Biblical love can be learned. Biblical love can be learned. This is major and absolutely revolutionary to 21st century Americans and maybe to some 21st century Christians. It's going to leave a lot of people blinking like, huh? You can learn to love? Yes, biblical love can be learned. Let's go back to Ephesians 5.25, same verse, but notice that part this time. Ephesians 5.25, 
Husbands, love your wives. Stop there. That's a command. That's an imperative. So let's assume right now you don't love her. God speaks and says, well, that's going to have to change. You're going to have to start loving her. You can learn. You can't just say, well, I don't love her anymore. There's an end of it. No, that's not the end of it. Here's the end of it. You must love her. It's God's command. It's his calling on your life as her husband. You must love that woman till you die. Husbands, love your wives. You can choose to do that. You can covenant to do that. You can commit to do that. You can work on that. You can acquire the skills to do that. Let's skip down to Titus 2, 3, please. And he says, older women. Again, same verse. But notice the word train. Older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands. You mean you can train love? I can say, come here, honey. You don't seem to be loving that man very good. I'm going to train you in how to love him. I've loved him for 45 years, so I'm going to teach you how to love yours. And it can be trained. It can be taught. You can learn it. You can acquire skills. You don't just fall in or out of love. You commit to love. You covenant to love. You work on love. You obey God and love. Still don't believe it? Let me illustrate that it can be done. Did you know that just over one half of all marriages on the planet, 52%, they tell us, right now, 52% of all marriages on the planet were arranged. And many of them, you never saw the person till the day you married them. Like, if this is how their marriages work in different countries, she comes down the aisle, she's got a veil. This is going to be the first time you've ever seen her face. And she pulls up the veil and you say, I do. And she says, I do. And you've never even met, much less fallen in love, much less felt a feeling. You don't have any feelings at this point. In India right now, 90% of all marriages are arranged. Their divorce rate is 6%. Our divorce rate is 35%. Don't listen to the people who say it's 50. They're wrong. Figures, statistics. It's 35%. How come 90% of their marriages are arranged and they only have a 6% divorce rate? And I'd hazard a guess that those 6% are the ones that weren't arranged. Picking your own spouse doesn't have a very good uh, rate of of, uh, performance. In America, we say, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. But in those lands, they say, first comes my parents and my grandparents, and they exchange donkeys and chickens and camels, and then they, make, they strike a deal, and then comes marriage, and then comes love. Most of the people who ever lived on the planet by far had arranged marriages in which they said, well, this is my wife now, I will love her. This is my husband now. I will learn to love him. You can absolutely learn to love a wife. You can absolutely learn to love a husband. So differences add to the fact that you're, you're already in trouble because you're both sinners. And then you add gender differences. That makes it even more difficult. But the thing can be navigated. It can be navigated by love. And the good news is you can learn to love. All right, I'm going to some conclusions. Number one, won't seem to fit, but it does. Let's stick. When it comes to gender and when it comes to marriage and when it comes to love, let's stick with the sufficiency of Scripture. We get all that we need to have a good marriage from Scripture. We have all, because all, all you need is love, right? 
Everything I need to have a good marriage is found in scripture. In other words, we don't need to go to books out there written by people who don't have a godly worldview, who don't have a scriptural world, and bring them in here and say, well, maybe here's what gender is. No, that's their thing. We stick to the Bible thing. Maybe here's what marriage is. No, we stick to the Bible thing. Here's what gender is. Here's what marriage is. Let's stick with the sufficiency of scripture on that. Scripture tells us what we need to know. Amen? I want a bigger one. Amen? That's, that's better. All right. Thank you for that. Here's a second conclusion. Let's stick to a biblical understanding of marriage, of marriage. In our day, and I am not aware of any other time in human history where we had this day. In our day, there are other competing views of and definitions of marriage. Are you aware of the fact that there are new definitions of family too? Like one of the latest that's hit the scene and been in the news is polyamory. And the way polyamory works is, and they say, this is a family. This is a family. And you have three guys who live in three different places and two girls maybe who live in two different places. And they all intermix and do things, you know, and that's considered, well, that's a family because we can define family any way we want to. Once you leave God's word, yeah, you can You can turn family into anything, marriage into anything, gender into anything, and they are working hard on doing that now. Let's us stick with scripture, all right? Let's stick to a biblical understanding of marriage, which is one man and one woman united in holy matrimony to love one another like Christ loved the church till death do us part. Let's stick with that. It's good for people. People will be blessed by that. Three, let's aim at marriages based on on the word of God, amen? Not just on what, you know, what's popular in the culture at the moment, not just on what Hollywood shows you. Let's have marriages based on the word of God. So what what should I be as a wife? And you go to Ephesians chapter five and you pour it into your soul and you meditate on it and you become that biblical wife. What, what do I need to be a husband? You also go to Ephesians 5 and you pour it into your soul and you start to fashion your marriage. Let's aim at marriages based on the word of God. Not Dr. Phil. He may have some good advice. Not Oprah Winfrey. She may have some good advice. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. But let's, let's aim at marriages that are based on scripture, on the word of God, because it's sufficient to give us everything we need for life and godliness. And finally, fourthly, let's aim at marriages fueled by love. So when someone comes in your home to visit you guys, they sense love. Someone meets you at church and you become part of a community group and they see the two of you together, they sense love. Let's aim at marriages fueled by love. And I wanna say, while I talk about that, all of this, of course, making love work at home, it only works if you have two who will do that. And I feel for some of you and I sympathize for some of you because you got another, but they will not. You, you're wanna, you wanna fix it. You wanna start loving. Let's love you and they won't. Maybe your only hope is when there are problems, there are always two people contributing to those. If you start changing If you start fixing your problems that contribute to the marriage, maybe they'll see and say, oh, wait a minute. He is changing. And maybe they'll have hope. This can be better. And maybe they'll begin to 
get interested again. Maybe I can change it. Maybe. Statistically, probably not. Maybe. But let's aim at marriages that are fueled by love, where both commit to biblical love, the commitment, the covenant, the serving, the giving. Marriages fueled by love. They're beautiful. They're to the blessing of men and women and boys and girls. They're good for the world. They're good for the church. So if you get nothing else from this message, get that one, love. You're single, love the people in your life. You're divorced, love the people in your life. Love, 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 love. It's the greatest of all these. Some of you are not Christians. Thank you for being with us today. And you might wonder, if I become a believer, what's that gonna mean? And you're trying to count the cost. Well, here's what it'll mean for marriage. Your marriage can get better. Now, maybe you already have a good one because God in common grace gives you gifts and you might have a great marriage, but it can probably become even better because you'll both, here's what'll happen. Not only will you learn about love, but you'll learn about sacrifice. You'll learn about sacrificing what your will desires to do the will of God. And that skill, submitting my will to the will of God, trickles over into other areas of your life and your marriage where you now say, I will also sacrifice for her here. I'll sacrifice for him here. Because I've learned to deny myself and prefer God. And that transfers over to, I can deny myself and prefer her. If you come to Jesus Christ, he'll make you better at being a wife, better at being a husband and you can have a better marriage in Christ. So it's all about love, family, men and women, marriage and love. That's where we've been today. Okay, can I pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us into this room to hear from your word. Please write it in our hearts, speak it into our souls, shape us, mold us, by the scriptures. We want to live to your honor and to your glory. And I pray to you for the marriages of Cornerstone Church and those all who are listening with us from wherever online. I pray for the marriages. May your word go in deep. May it find lodging deep down in souls. May it bear fruit that brings joy and love and peace and beauty into marriages and into homes for the glory of God, for our joy and well-being, for the good of our kids. Oh, Father, speak into our souls about marriage and love. For we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.